today. We're in 1 John. That's what we're studying today. And uh, we've been there for a long time, but not too long. <laughs> so here we are in 1 John, and guess what we're going to talk about? Love. That's right. <laughs> You've been talking about love so much in 1 John, I think uh, what else can be said about it, you know? But you know what? There does always seem to be more that he has to say about it. So John, the apostle of love, um, he, he looks at love from so many different angles. That's why he goes on and on about it here. There's so many ways that love touches our Christian life. Love's kind of like a diamond, you know, the, the multifaceted, beautiful stone. And you look at this and go, oh, that's really beautiful. And you turn it this way and go, oh, that's really beautiful. Well, love is like that. There's many facets, many dimensions to it, many elements to it. So, I'm a little sad to tell you that today's text offers us John's final words about love in this letter. So, we're finally going to get to a new topic tomorrow, next week, I mean. So, but today, he's uh, kind of bringing it all to a summary, a, a close. Um, it's very direct, very to the point. He, he's labored to teach us about love within the church family, in the family of God. So he doesn't mince any words here. We have absolute obligations to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he talks about today what is impossible and what is possible in regard to love for God and love for one another. So you know the Bible says some amazing things about what is possible and what is impossible. For example, remember Mary when the angel Gabriel came to Mary in her home? She was challenged to believe what he was going to tell her. And this is what he said. This is from Luke chapter 1. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Wow. And she answers... How can this be since I am a virgin? It seems, that's right, thank you. It seems impossible. And then Gabriel gives her a little lecture on what is possible. So he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God, he says. So Aunt Elizabeth, Mary's aunt, uh, is conceiving in her advanced years. And that was thought impossible. But the angel says nothing is impossible with God. And Jesus too also spoke about things, God making things possible. Remember when he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Remember that? That's, and all the rich people are like, oh my gosh, I better get rid of this. So the disciples are stunned that he says that. Not because they were rich, but because they assumed in that culture that rich people were blessed of God. That they had special blessings. They had God's favor. If the rich will find it impossible to get, get into heaven, these poor guys are thinking, well, what about us? People that aren't super blessed by God in that kind of way. That's what they're thinking. So they say to Jesus when he says that, then who can be saved? And Jesus famously answers, with men it is impossible, but not with God. 
for all things are possible with God. There are impossible things and there are possible things. And things that might seem impossible are not a problem for the maker of all things. He can do what he wants. But even with God, I mean, some things are impossible. For example, Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie. So anything inconsistent with his true nature, he, obviously he can't do that. He can't sin. God can do anything he wants, but he never wants to do evil. So he, it's impossible for him to do that because his nature is pure goodness. So then, let's see today what the apostle says about what is possible and what is impossible in the Christian love department. So when we talk about loving one another, okay? So and I think this might be a little bit of a shock because... Um, we're at the end of chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to work our way into chapter 5. So in verse 19, John repeats this foundational truth that he said before. He says, we love because he first loved us. We know what love is because of God's love for us. We would never come to love God if God didn't love us. Without the love of God coming to us, we would never have the capacity to love him above all other things. Or love one another in a Christ-like manner because it's all rooted in his love for us. So we need, we need a work of grace from God to start this work of love in us and to help it grow to maturity. His, his love is what awakens us. Awakens us to who Christ is. Awakens us to the beauty of salvation. Awakens us to God's love for us. And then we learn what love really is. So now comes the shock, the, the hard truth. It's in verse 20 of 1 John chapter 4. And he's describing a way that too many, too many professing Christians deceive themselves. So he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's a hard truth. But that's what the Bible says. How can you love God who is not visible and hate a human being whom you can see that's made in the image of God? You're, you're lying about your love for God if you can't love one another. That's what he's saying. If you hate a brother or sister in Christ, if your heart's desire is not for their good, completely for their good, then you can blow a trumpet all day long about your love for God, but it's just, just air. It, there's nothing behind it. It's a sham. So instead of humbly receiving God's love and letting that love flow out through you to other people and blessing them, your hate is really, really what you're doing is you're putting yourself on God's throne. He's the judge. He sits on the throne. And you're saying, I'm going to climb up there with you and I'm going to point out everything that's wrong with so-and-so. You're, you're, you've stepped onto the judgment seat and you've made a determination. That brother is unworthy of my love. I'm not pointing at you, Jack. I'm pointing at an empty seat. <laughs> you're saying, that brother is unworthy of my love. Remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12? He said, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, he said, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Hate prevents you, obviously, from overcoming evil with good. It, it, it can't happen if you are hating on someone. Yeah, but you know, so-and-so, they're really asking for it. I mean, you don't know what they did to me. Then Paul says in that text, let God have his due with them. He's going to take care of them. He always does. Give them to him. But especially in regard to your fellow believer, your only obligation is love. We're supposed to love our enemies, but especially we're supposed to love one another. So think about it. That, that brother or sister that might be a problem for you is made in the image of God and was saved by God. And they're creatures of the highest value to him. And that's how you have to think about everybody. And you despise them? How can you do that? How can, who are you to do that? Well, I'm really wonderful. Well, you know better than that. They have the highest value, those people. So why don't you lift them up in prayer? Why don't you desire more than anything else to see them grow? Why don't you long for reconciliation with them? If it's a brother or a sister in Christ, then Christ was flogged and beaten and crucified for that person. So how can you hate them when he did that for them? Because you're supposed to be his children. So you need to ask yourself, how did I arrive at this place where I'm hating on somebody, where I can't stand them, or I want them out of my presence? It's not possible to love God and hate your brother. That's impossible. It is not possible to love God and hate your brother. So John's talked so much about love in chapter 4. He, he, he said it needs to be perfected. And we talked about that word. It means to be mature. It needs to come to fruition. But if we hate our brother or sister in Christ, then that love cannot be perfected. It cannot mature. It cannot grow to where it's supposed to be. Then in verse 21, John gives us this really simple command from the Lord. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Just in case he didn't pick up from the last verse. <laughs> really spelled out right there. It's as clear as can be. It's not complicated. Is it easy? No. Not always easy. But sometimes actually it can be very difficult. But the commandment is there. And commandments from God are to be obeyed. We're supposed to love him and keep his commandments. Right? So that word commandment is going to show up several more times this morning as we move through this text. But never lose sight of verse 21. It's the simplest of truths. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So you're to measure your Christian walk by those words. You're supposed to measure your leaders by those words as well. You know angry ministers that berate people all the time? Um, those are not shepherds. <laughs> They're not, they're not people to follow. And as we move to chapter 5 here, John is going to develop this theme by emphasizing the church as a spiritual family. So the basis of our love for each other is familial. It's a, it's a, it's a family in Christ. And it's rooted in the shared reality of the new birth. So now go to chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Okay, stop right there. So the most basic fact is the new birth is something that has happened to all believers. They are born anew. What is that? 
We read earlier John chapter 3, the, the greatest teacher in Israel, Nicodemus, he didn't get it. So what, what are you talking about? How do you go back and get born again? What is that? Of course, he's thinking physically and all of that. The new birth is something that happens to every believer. It's not a label. I'm born again. It's not a label. I'm a born again Christian. It's a declaration. But it's much more than that. You know, justification is a pure de declaration. I declare you righteous in Christ. That's what Paul calls justification. That's a very important theological word. But the new birth is much more than that. It's an, it's an internal transformation. So the Bible word, and theologians use this word to describe the new birth, is regeneration. You're literally born anew. You, you're, there's a new you going on there. Something has happened. An awakening has happened. The lost sinner is dead to God until the Holy Spirit awakens him and brings life to him, makes us alive. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that. So the Spirit opens the heart and we become aware of the excellence of Jesus and the worthiness of Jesus as God come in flesh to pay for our sins. And we love him. Before the new birth starts to happen, we're just like, oh, yeah, it's a wonderful story, Jesus and the, all that. But when the new birth happens, it's, oh, Jesus, he came for me. He loves me. He died for my sins. I'm going to follow him. That's the new birth at work right there. The Holy Spirit opens our heart and draws us by the saving power of God to the Lord Jesus with humble adoration. And we do that to be saved by him. Here's Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We talked about that verse last week. That making us alive, that's the new birth right there. You were dead in your sins, he made you alive. We also mentioned 1 Peter, I think, last week. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Wow. So like Paul and Peter talking about the new birth, John is talking about the new birth here as essential to our understanding of who we are in Christ and our salvation. That's why John's gospel devotes that chapter 3 to that subject of the new birth. It's so important. So Christians have in common this, this great work in us, this new life, this awakening from our, our lost and sinful condition to this newness of life in Christ. And it's a real change. It's a real change. There's an inner disposition that changes. And our attitude towards Christ has changed who that person is. Suddenly he's the most wonderful thing there is and we worship him. So the reality of God's person, which maybe before was sort of a mystery to us, becomes really obvious to us who God is and we see him as the source of all good and the center of all things he's our creator he's our redeemer we see all of that he becomes the center of our lives of course where God should be think about how most people think about God he's just sort of a thing that's out there or someone to pray to when you're in trouble he's not the center I'm the center right but when you come to the Lord you know I am not the center he is the center and everything's going to revolve around him 
Because he's God. He's the maker of the universe. He's not some Santa Claus sitting out there. And I am a failed human. And he has provided a way for me to be reconciled to him as his child. And that's what I am. I'm going to serve him. Because he's the center of all things. Of course he is. He should be. I guess I would say it's even weird, even, even bonkers that somebody would ever think that God is not the center of all life. If he's God, he's the center of everything. But most people actually don't think he's the center of everything. In reality, it's, it's, it's not weird because you'd think that's the most insane thing to think, that God is not the center of everything. But that's what I used to think. God wasn't the center of my everything. I mean, I was interested. I've always, you know, from a child, I was interested in God. I thought, I thought he was really interesting. And the whole story of Jesus was interesting. And I found it compelling in a general sort of way. It wasn't everything to me. But he was merely an interest of mine. He wasn't the Lord. He wasn't my king. I wasn't really interested in following him or praying to him or anything like that. He wasn't the center of my affections. He wasn't the center of my thinking. I was. But when the new birth happened, all that went away and changed. And he became the center of everything. That's what happens to every believer. So without the new birth, God would have remained for me just an interest and little more. But with the new birth, everything's new. Everything's changed. So the new birth is a work of grace. It's a gift of God. Something only God can do. We can't do that. You can't make yourself born again. That's impossible. But it's something he can do in you. I don't think most of us would expect to go to a cemetery and call up the dead. I think if you said you were going to do that tomorrow, somebody would say, that's impossible. And it would be impossible for us to make ourselves alive to God. But God can do it. He, it's possible. People say blood is thicker than water. Right? Ever heard that expression? Well, spirit is thicker than blood. And anybody to whom the Lord has given this new birth is part of our family and we are to love them we are to love them in the highest way because spirit is thicker than everything verse um, 5 here is that where we are whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him is that verse 1 I think I 5 1 right yeah. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Got that? Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So how can we not love those who are also born anew? By his spirit. There's a spiritual bond that unites all believers. So we have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one spirit, a person, and that spirit has taken up residence in us and is teaching us and telling us to love one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's what Paul says. So to, to fail in love toward other people whom God the Father has called into his family is really arrogant and corrupted. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible, misguided concept that it's okay to do that. We're called to love our enemies, like I said earlier. That's, that's Jesus' teaching. So to fail in love to a brother or a sister in Christ is 
absolutely unthinkable. But, but pastor, this brother or that sister, they act like my enemy. If you'd only heard what they said about me to so-and-so the other day, oh, it was slanderous. It was, wasn't true at all. I am so deeply offended. Okay, so let's take that brother or sister that did that horrible, horrible act against you. Either maliciously or because they're just sort of petty and small-minded. Can you love small-minded and petty people? Can Jesus love small-minded and petty people? You're supposed to do it like him, right? Yes, you can. Love simply is choosing to want what's best for them and pursue that. That's what love is. What is best for that Paul, that, that, that petty and small-minded person? What's best for them? Even if it was malicious, what's best for that malicious person? Jesus said, Jesus, when he talked about loving your enemies, he said, you have four things you owe them. Four things. You must love them. He said, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So love them. Do good to them. Bless them and pray for them. That's it. That's all you owe them. <laughs> Even that snarky, difficult person. And the last item I think is really important. Pray for them. Because if you actually do hate someone, and I've personally experienced this, if somebody's so wronged you that you just can't let it go, you're really angry with them, you've got hatred towards them, if you, if you pray for them, you can't keep hating. It's impossible. If you pray for them every day, and if it's really bad, then write out a prayer that you can read for them every day. It, you know, because uh, I can't even think of anything. Well, create a prayer for that person and pray it every day. And you know what? You'll stop hating them. That's what happens. Because you want, you want what's best for them. That's how, to, that's how to work through those things. Even really difficult people, even people that have truly, seriously wronged you. Look at how Jesus treated people that seriously wronged him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So Paul says um, to speak the truth in love. And you can do that. You can speak the truth in love to them. But you have to want above all considerations and all hurt feelings and all personal offenses, above all of those things, you have to want what is best for that person, that brother or sister in Christ. That's how you function. That's how you can do it. I think 1 John 5, 2 says everything here. By this, we, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Isn't that something? I love you best by loving God and keeping his commandments. And you love me best by loving God and keeping his commandments. Isn't that interesting? That answers the how you know question with regard to this whole thing. How do I know I'm loving my brother? I love God and I keep his commandments. I do everything he tells me to do. And that includes what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. Love them, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. So if I, feel God, if I love God and I feel much, how I feel is much less important than what he says about it, right? 
If I love him, my feelings have to be set on a shelf compared to what he asked me to do because I'm going to do what he says. If I love God, I'll do my best to follow everything that he wants from me, right? Yeah, but that person, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to sit around and wonder about our feelings about things. How affectionate do I feel towards so-and-so, right? Susie's not my favorite person after all. <laughs> or he's so obnoxious. I just can't stand him. But, but God can stand you. And how do you, think he, how do you think he looks at some of the stuff you do? He puts up with you. He waits for you to settle down. So can't you, who expect God to love you and depend on God's loving you, can't you show that same love to other people? That, that's what he's talking about here. So you might think, I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure that's possible. I'm not sure that's possible. Well, the love John is talking about is possible. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Now following the Lord and loving our brother or sister is possible. It's possible for you. It's not only possible, it's actually natural. Because when he says it's not burdensome, he doesn't mean it's easy necessarily, but it's absolutely fitting our new nature in Christ, this new birth that we have to do that. It's, it's totally appropriate to it and it's in you to do it. We have the capacity to love like that if you know Christ. So don't let your emotions force these words out of your mouth. <gasps> I can't do it. <laughs> because you can do it. That's not true. It's possible. It's not only possible, it's natural to you to do it. Loving like Jesus is put into us with the new birth. And so the capacity is there. Somebody compared it to a mother loving a baby. Is it easy loving a baby? We got two grandbabies at our house right now. Is it easy to love them all the time? Well, of course it's easy to love them, but can they drive you insane? Yes. <laughs> it can be really difficult and super exhausting and trying. You know, we watched our two grandbabies a few weeks ago for two weeks and Laura's been a teacher for 30 years, kindergartners. I've never seen her as exhausted coming home from school as working 24 hours a day with those two little babies. I mean, it's just, it's exhausting. But you can do it. <laughs> and she wanted to do it. In fact, she wanted to do it again. So here we have them again. They're sitting over there. They're screaming over there. She fell in the bush with them this morning, right? I heard, I heard about that. And so tripped over them. <laughs> But a mom can do it. Grandmas can do it too. Likewise, it is not a burden to love other Christians. It's not burdensome. You, if you dwell on Christ's love for you, it's actually a burden to withhold that love. That's the burden. The burden is to withhold it and to hate. That's, that's where you feel unnatural, like you're not living with Christ. You're not walking that way. That, that's what steals your joy as a Christian, to hate someone. Obedience to the commandment to love actually sets you free from anger and, and actually a lot of sorrow. It sets you free from those things. Any Christian, every Christian has divine resources to obey God's commandments. We have the power to obey God's commandments. It's, it's possible. How do I know that? Verse 4. 
Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So here we see one of John's favorite words, overcome. The word overcome is a, is a Greek form of the word Nike. You know those tennis, tennis shoes? So Nike in Greece was the, the goddess of victory, but it just means victory. The word Nike means victory, and that's the word he uses here. It's translated um, victory in verse 4. Victory over what? Over the world, he says. Over the world system, the, the ways of the world, the schemes, the desires, the preferences, and the goals of the world of men that is always a, away from God. The things that most most people put in the center of their lives, those things that they care about the most instead of God, those are the things we're talking about. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 15, um, John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he defines it, the lust of the flesh, the, boast, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That's what most people live for. It's not from the Father, he says, but that is from the world. And he said, the world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. William MacDonald, a Bible commentator, he explains what the world means, I think, really well. So let me read this for you. He says, it's the world system... The world system is a monstrous scheme of temptation, always trying to drag us away from God and from what is eternal and seeking to occupy us with what is temporary and sensual. People of the world are completely taken up with things of time and sense. Only the man who is born of God really overcomes the world because by faith he's able to rise above perishable things of this world and to see things in their true eternal perspective. Thus, the one who truly overcomes the world is not the great scientist or philosopher or psychologist, but the simple believer who realizes that the things which are seen are temporary and the things which are not seen are eternal. And then he concludes, he says, the sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus dims the glory of this world. So the new birth, this new birth, he's talking about it right here, being born of God is what generates the faith that John is talking about here. That's where our faith actually comes from. That's why the one who is born of God is an overcomer, overcomes the world. The world often speaks of having, the world says have faith in yourself. Our, our world says that all the time. You see that on television all the time. That's the wise person says, you need to have faith in yourself. Now look, if you're running a race and you're an athlete or something, yeah, have faith in yourself. That's fine. But we're not talking about that in terms of the most important things of life. In spiritual matters, that is the worst advice you can give someone. Have faith in yourself. Self is the last place to put your faith. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet says, the heart is deceitful above all things. You're going to trust the most deceitful thing in the world? Not me. I tried that once. Didn't work. Faith is in Christ alone. Jesus is the object of the Christian's faith. Not faith in faith. Not faith in me. Not faith in the power of my words or anything silly like that. Faith in Christ the person. He will grant us victory over the world as we trust in him. And as we put him first place in our hearts and in our lives, he becomes, he's, he is to us exactly who he's supposed to be. He, the place he has the right to be, our king, our lord, our sovereign, our savior. 
So victory in Jesus then is to defeat sin, to conquer self, self-centeredness, to overcome whatever schemes the world has or Satan throws at you, to take victory over that. It's not about victory over your finances. It's not about victory over every ailment that you have. It's not about victory over other people. It's about victory over sin and the ways of this world. That's what Christ saves us from. Victory for us is to represent his coming kingdom well. You are victorious in your Christian life if you represent his kingdom well. That's what it is. To be faithful. To trust him always. That is victory. Victory over the world and all that the world craves. That's what that is. You have, to, you have to have faith and that faith has to rest on Jesus Christ. You have to know him. You have to walk with him. You have to trust him. Do that and you will have a victorious life. And God will be glorified. Let's pray. Our great father who is like you, perfect in every way, holy and good, infinite in wisdom and having all authority. And yet you love poor sinners like us. It's the wonder of wonders that you love us and that you carried our sin to the cross. May we be yours in all things. Faithful. May we be faithful. You've made holiness possible for us. You've made truth-telling possible for us. You've made love possible for us. We can live it in our Savior. So may we shine with your love for all the world to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.